Let us receive together the word of God. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Right. Um, he called her a dog. There's nothing I can do to change that. And I really hate to disappoint anyone today. I doubt adding Jesus to any list of leaders, public or spiritual, saying disrespectful or derogatory things directed toward women is a to-do item for you today. But before we completely jump in, let's just be clear that the line about dogs is meant to be insulting to the Canaanite woman or anybody else who would have received it. And there's no level of contextualizing or excuse making that can change that. And from our vantage point, we are inevitably going to read into it the lessons and failures of much more than 2000 years of patronizing insulting and violent behavior toward women, including our current and recent history of specifically calling women dogs as a means to insult or belittle them. And there's no need to ignore that history. And if it helps you to connect with this woman in a deeper way, then I would say lean into that and hold it gently. Narratively speaking, getting the knives out for Jesus is not a bad place to start. For indeed, that's why he's on the move in the first place. In our chapter, Jesus has just recently gotten himself into a heated exchange, once again, with the Pharisees and the scribes. And in the preceding verses, the Pharisees and the scribes had come to question the behavior and practice of Jesus and the disciples, saying they are not following the traditions of the elders. And Jesus' reply is about as short-tempered as the exchange with the Canaanite woman. In summary, you hypocrites, flouting tradition suits you fine so long as you get a payout as the result. 
And Jesus throws a little Isaiah at them in a parting shot. Afterward, and what I like to imagine is like a bathroom lobby or an adjoining hallway scene, the disciples explain to Jesus that he basically just insulted a bunch of guys who can kill him. And a brooding Jesus explains what he meant when he said something cryptic by saying something else cryptic and reaches the conclusion, yeah, we should probably go. And this is where we pick up. This is where we pick up today as Jesus went away out into the areas of Tyre and Sidon. The phrase went away in English gives us the clue as to the reason Jesus is on the move. The Greek phrase used here is also used in multiple other verses in Matthew. To name a few, it's used to describe how the Magi refused to return to Herod after finding the baby Jesus. It's used to describe a change of plan during the return of the Holy Family from their refugee stay in Egypt. And it is used to indicate Jesus's going away after he receives news that his cousin John the Baptist has been arrested and his withdrawal after receiving word that John had been killed. And having sat with this text to prepare for today, I've gotten more of a sense that this going away is less a matter of Jesus being tired, as I have often read this story, and more of a strategic change of plan to escape a potential danger with a hint of underlying fear. So off they go into the land of the Gentiles toward the seaside mountains to escape people in the suspecting eye of religious leaders. And then this woman, this woman of a different ethnicity, this woman of the opposite gender, and of people representing a different religion, runs out and meets the Jesus entourage. And it says she is essentially screaming with a lot of emotion in such a way that it's hard to understand her praising Jesus and telling him that her daughter is sick with a demon. And the disciples say, send her away. She's loud and she makes no sense. Jesus makes the attempt to just ignore her, but she continues with, Lord, help me. And that is when Jesus says, meaning to insult her as a means of getting her away from him. It's morally wrong to give food meant for the children, the faithful family, to the dogs. In preparation for a talk called Beyond the Monuments, Foundry member Greg Magruder had to, had to, sift through the photo archives at National Geographic Society. As they worked their way through the collection, Greg said that he came across a photo which sparked a conversation. Depicted in this photo is a black woman selling produce at the old DC Central Market, roughly where the National Archives building stands today. The caption, describing the photo, 
used a racial epithet that I won't be using, but suffice it to say, an old blanky woman selling produce at the center market. The instinct of one colleague was to say, we should change that caption. That's not a bad idea, given that we know on many levels that there is a serious problem with the language as well as the overall cultural assumptions which the caption exposes. Recognizing it as a bad thing is a good reflex. Greg's thought on changing it, however, was no. That's part of our institution's history, and we must wrestle with it, with what it means, especially for National Geographic as an organization with a mission to help people see the world around them, but did so with a perspective. And in this case, one that was reductive and dehumanizing for the woman. There seems to be no shortage of stories we avoid, and for that matter, in this moment, stories with which we wrestle as a public. Even the ones we are engaging, like the legacy and continued effects of state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people in the United States, can feel more chaotic than productive. Certainly the responses to the cries of Black Lives Matter or put another way, our children are tormented, have been at best a mixed bag of chaotic, violent, with some bits of progress here and there. Too often the response to the cries of pain mirror almost exactly the response of the disciples and of Jesus in the first half of our story. The disciples' first response is, Send her away. She's crying after us. This is following us around with an inarticulate, urgent screams of deep emotion. And I receive that as, I'm uncomfortable with the manner which you have expressed your pain. Therefore, please stop. This has also manifested itself in the perennial statement, it's not what she said, it's the way she said it. That is a power and a privilege move to end the whole conversation, thereby ignoring the pain of another because it makes them uncomfortable. And I get that they didn't call her a dog, but woof, that's a rough one too. In our context, White people, through everyday privilege and through institutional power, do that one a lot when confronted with the reality of pain and death that results from enculturated sexism, racism, and white supremacy. And it rears itself with more frequency and with more acceptance by other members of the privileged group due to its subtle resonance. Ultimately, it's not less violent as it preserves violent systems and serves the same end of control over those who experience oppression. Then if confronted with a situation where the cries of pain do not stop, 
despite the efforts of the privileged, come the more physical modes of violence. In our verse today, the name-calling, in far too many cases, the physical intimidation and violence. That has been true in congregations, in denominations, in boardrooms, and in communities big and small. Preparing for the encounter. She must have known how it could go. A woman makes the decision, likely with some spontaneity, to approach in public a group of Jewish men, that is, a group of men who are historically considered her enemy, Knowing anything about our own culture of gender-based violence will tell you that the calculations she makes are numerous. And the potential for violence is both real, in addition to any fear-based stereotypes meant to keep two poor groups scared of one another. Still, with all of that and all of what could possibly go wrong, She makes her approach, and she makes her plea to the one that she believes, the one that she knows is Lord, son of David. Lord, help me, as plain as she can make it. I'm not here for you, is the reply. What I have is for the children, not the dogs. These are warning signs, and this is a juncture in the encounter. From here, it either escalates in a predictable, more violent manner, or something unexpected happens. However this needs to fall for you in this moment, Jesus the author of the gospel, whatever, in this verse, along with the disciples, the Jesus character has delineated his contemporary and commonly held traditional walls between the groups. We are in and you are out. At this point, I imagine the intended Matthew community not necessarily thinking, but following along the predictable path of the encounter and assuming this woman is going to leave or be run off. Perhaps even musing, yeah, that's right. God prepared a great meal for us, not them. The Canaanite woman continues, and she redirects what proves to be a limited image presenting a binary culturally assumed choice. It is children or dogs. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even just practically and not spiritually, anyone who has been in a house or lives in a house with dogs present at mealtime knows that the pet parent or the toddler or the grandparents who won't listen 
were constantly slipping food to the dog in some fashion. And no one is going hungry. The switch from food for the children to a refocus on the source of the bread demonstrate the woman's understanding, her cleverness, and her boldness. All things that generally draw more male wrath and fragility. It also demonstrates the woman's faith, though there was no request for that. Her faith is called by Jesus, great. Pause. I understand that the English term great has taken a bit of a hit recently and has become both a political rallying cry and a sarcastic retort. That is not what we are talking about here. The great used to describe this woman's faith is the same great used to describe the loud, crying out Jesus ultimately does from the cross before his death. Her faith is his kind of faith. The kind of greatness in faith that rather than doubling down for the sake of comfort and power, confronts, subverts, enculturated violence and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves to no longer be tormented by their demons. Jesus does not make an excuse for himself or for the disciples. Only scholars and pastors do that throughout history. And I don't think it's necessary. And I am wrestling today not to do that. Or dancing around the plainness of Jesus saying something which is at best not nice to this woman serves ultimately as a form of gaslighting. Telling people, particularly women, who have suffered this same format of violence that this is somehow okay. That is, it is a test of faith that it is some necessary step along the way to healing, to ordination, to promotions, to abundance. And we know that's not right. And that's one of the best conclusions that can be drawn here. God knows it too. I know that this encounter with the living God might be a little too human. A little too human, Jesus. Maybe just dial it back a little. But I think that's actually the bright spot. Now, for Matthew's original intended audience, who participated fully in the cultural norms of their moment, including the insult, this story for them can just simply be one more marker within the gospel where an ever-widening ministry with the Gentiles 
continues and culminates in the Great Commission, sending them out to all the world. For them, likely the most objectionable portion of the story was that Jesus spoke to the Gentile woman at all. But that becomes one barrier broken through the encounter. For us, despite having this story as an example, we have layered in thousands of years of getting it wrong like Jesus in the first half, and fewer prominent examples of Jesus who learns, turns, and does differently in the second half. We don't need to ignore the uncomfortable and violent nature of the first half of this text. It is conflict. Conflict happens. Conflict can lead to something different. doesn't need to happen this way, but it happens. As Greg said, we need to wrestle with this and what it means for us. Indeed, I think that is what Matthew and Jesus do. They wrestle with the culturally established and normalized violent behaviors of their day. It's not pretty, but it's there. Ultimately, like all other Jesus stuff, we are given a lived example of how it can be different. Even if the lived example here is just permission to learn, permission to change one's mind, permission to stop participating in harm. This afternoon, we'll have the chance to continue wrestling with our own foundry story. As we begin sitting with the results from our Journey to Racial Justice survey, knowing anything, knowing anything about the cultural violence in which we all reside, I expect to receive some things that are uncomfortable. I expect we'll receive indications of racialized violence, subtle and otherwise, that still exist in our current life together, different and yet the same as it's been over our 200-year history and our 2,000-plus-year history. So we'll step into a vulnerable space together. We will watch for the warning signs within ourselves, seeking not to control as we hold space together. And we'll receive, and we'll learn, and we'll turn, and we'll continue forward until it can be said that we don't scrap for crumbs, but live authentically and justly, as I know we all wish. I, for one, am thankful for this story. And I'm thankful for the journey that we continue. I'm exceedingly thankful to be in service for one who knows all of the human experience, not crumbs of the experience, but all of it, including what it's like to need to continue to learn while making moves against enculturated violence practiced by me, practiced by us.
I'm exceedingly thankful for people who de-escalate. I'm exceedingly thankful that we serve a God of grace who knows what grace extended looks like. I'm exceedingly thankful for a God who doesn't participate in economies of crumbs, but sets full meals of life and says, let it be just as you wish. And I'm thankful for faith-filled women who knowing and experiencing all of the possible outcomes still step out to confront and to subvert that which is meant to divide and harm. All of us are free to join that work. All of us are needed in the work, even if we still have learning to do. Jesus and the Canaanite woman removed that barrier long ago. Amen.